Let me think of a good intro. Something about Halloween. This is being Halloween-ish. Oh, yeah. So we can just say Happy Halloween. Uh-huh. Okay. Wait, what are we Ooh. saying? <laughs> Who's saying just what? Happy Halloween. <laughs> okay. Trick or treat or something. Um, happy haunting. Yeah. Welcome to Mr. Radical, where we take a theoretical approach to solving mysteries. So welcome to our Halloween special episode and Yay! join us for this week's Mr. Radical. Uh, children who remember past lives. Yes. I'm JP. And I'm Lynn. Happy haunting. I don't know. Happy haunting. <laughs> what are you doing awesome. for Halloween? Uh, I'm going to be in Hawaii. Oh, yeah. Fancy schmancy. Yeah, just vacationing on the beach. Mm. Bitch. (laughs) (laughs) Those are my plans. That's where I'm at right now. Just imagine me there. You're like drinking a Mai Tai. (laughs) Yeah. I have like a hula Mm. skirt on. Yes. Just make sure you buy it from native Hawaiians. (laughs) Yes. Absolutely. I love it. So, um, I have a, quite a few stories. How should we do this? Just bounce back and forth? Sure. Mine are all old. Okay. Not crazy mine old, are, but... Mine are all new-ish. Okay. So, all of mine... It? Yeah. All of mine cover a specific uh, topic or a specific genre, I guess you could say, of children who remember past lives. Um, these are kids that were born after 9-11 that remember 9-11. And for anyone listening who was also born after 9-11, on September 11th, 2001, 2,996 people died during terror attacks on the United States. Years after, many children that were born after it, obviously, uh, remember the attacks and what they were doing and when they died. Is it weird that I also have, like, a false memory of 9-11? I mean, I was alive and young, but, like, where I remember watching it, I was with my mom, and my dad was like, we didn't live in that house yet. So I also have, Oh, interesting. You know, I've actually heard a couple of people say things like that, um, where they have, like, a false memory of when it happened. Mine, I remember I was in school when it happened. Most people were. I was just homeschooled, so I wasn't. Yeah. Um, so I, I know that, I mean, maybe you were watching a documentary or something about it with your mom. I don't, I don't know. I, I feel like it was it. I feel like I remember like the living room and like the TV we were at, like where we were and stuff. But yeah, he was like, no, I was like, oh, well, even my mom said no. She was like, that's not where we were. We were at the old house. And I was like, I really, I wonder if it's just our brains like trying to disassociate. Right. Because we were children watching thousands of people die on TV. Yeah. It's very possible. Yeah. Um, so go for so it. So let me hop into my first story. Uh, my first story is about Riss White. She's actually a um, TikToker. 
who posted this on TikTok, and she, I think that you would love her. I'm going to send you her profile after this. She does a lot of, like, indigenous and Native American, um, uh, like, posts and whatnot. Yes. Um, and she also does a lot of reincarnation stories. That's dope. In 2018, so there was one that, like, posted, and it was, like, um, like one of those challenges, and the first lady is, like, tell me about... Um, like, tell me about, like, your child's reincarnation story or blah, 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 blah. And so Riss responded to it and said that in 2018, her four-year-old daughter was looking at photographs of the North Tower of the Twin Towers in New York City. Okay. Um, the North Tower was one of the buildings that collapsed. She, the daughter, claimed to have worked in that building, and suddenly the floor got very hot. So she stood on the table, and some of her colleagues tried to leave through the door but couldn't open it. Desperation kicked in and she jumped from the window and, quote, flew like a bird, unquote. Her daughter had never seen photographs prior to that day of 9-11 or the terror attacks or the Twin Towers and hadn't heard anything about the attacks. Well, why would she? She's four. Right. But remembers everything that happened. The heat, the heat thing stands out to me because that's super specific to, like, something's yeah. happening. Right. Weird. Is that it? <laughs> That's it. Weird. That's weird. Yeah. The yeah. heat thing. The heat thing is weird. That's weird. Yeah. How many times can I say weird in a minute? <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of weird. Okay. So mine are like, they were children when they started to remember things. And then they were adults uh, because they're old. They're not like new stories. They weren't, you know, a couple years ago. They're old stories. So we're going to head to Burma. Well, what is now Myanmar? Myanmar? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Which used to be Burma. They found over 750 cases of children remembering their past lives. There are 24 specific children who are believed to be Japanese soldiers during World War II in the past. 16 of the kids were male and eight were female. So the females remember living their previous life as male because I don't think there were women soldiers. Interesting. Um, these 24 did not give any personal names or addresses, but they all did not like the spicy Burmese food that was like common in the area, um, and they all craved raw fish. They showed behaviors of dress that were typical of Japanese culture. Um, and I do want to say even the study I read was like, not that any of these traits are specifically Japanese, but that they differ from like typical Burmese children, like mm-hmm. what their lives were like. Um, they had an insensitivity to pain. They were hardworking in a way that is similar to Japanese culture. Not that Burmese are not hardworking, just in the way they were. Um, they had a dislike for hot water and they didn't like dressing in Burmese style clothing. They preferred trousers and boots because remember they were soldiers and this includes seven out of the eight girls who preferred men's clothing. Hmm. These kids resided mostly in a geographical triangle between Mandalay. I didn't look up how to read any of this. Miktila and mm-hmm. Piabwe. Sorry. <laughs> um, which is where the majority of battles and fatalities in 1945 took place in that region. There were also other cases in this specific region where the kids did not remember being 
Japanese soldiers. So there are other cases of like reincarnation stories in children in this area that weren't Japanese soldiers. Um, every single child was Burmese and all of their parents were Theravidan Buddhists. I don't know what that means, but they all had the same religion. Um, only two of the 24 mentioned names um, out of two out of the 24 mentioned names. Some talked of wives. I don't know why I wrote that. That doesn't make sense. Only two of the 24 mentioned names. I know. I'm going to get rid of that. I don't know what that is. Some talked of wives and children. Others remembered if they were drafted or if they volunteered. Some remembered their rank, and most of them knew how they died, and they were almost always violent or preceded by torture. Most described being shot or blown up. Two were burned alive by Burmese villagers, and one had his throat cut at the zoo in Rangoon after the British had captured it. Typically, these kids were harmonious with their families, and there weren't any serious issues. However, one child was extremely cruel to animals and had a tendency to be violent toward others. Another asked for a pair of pliers to pull out the fingernails of a playmate that annoyed him. Oh, my God. Which was a practice used in Kenpeitai, which was a military police arm of the Imperial Japanese Army from 1881 to 1945. A lot of Can I ask kids- you a question? Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, where was there anything okay that came up in your research and stuff? You might not know it, but was there anything that came up in your research that showed like Japanese refugees or anything relocating to Myanmar? No. Okay. This will come up later and I'll talk about it. Um like based on one of the articles that I read of why I asked that question, but continue. I'm excited. Okay. Um, a lot of, I'm almost done. I only have two more bullets. Um, a lot of the kids talked about Japan as if it was their home country. Like um, the Japanese war graves commission came in and like one of the girls was like, those are my country's people like super proudly. Um, yeah. They would also, one came home and rebuked his parents for idleness and saying, in my country, we had to work to put bread on the table, (laughs) which I just thought was cute. Um, One even claimed that her family treated her as a foreigner, although the study was like, they loved her. I don't know what you're talking about. Um, And this study, like I said, they were like, had all these memories as children, but when the study was done, they were all adults. So some witnesses are also recalling memories from like 15 to 20 years ago. Either way, it's still strange and like super specific and weird. Yeah. Interesting. My first one. Okay. My second one is about Cade. 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 Cade started having nightmares when he was three. He would scream in in his sleep about planes crashing into the Twin Towers. I think that he just mentioned skyscrapers, but later then started, like, specifying Twin Towers. Hmm. He then began drawing the Twin Towers with a man falling from them. Cade even remembered his name, Robert Patterson. Patterson. Not Robert Patterson? (laughs) (laughs) Cade claimed that Robert had an office in the North Tower, and he could see the Statue of Liberty from his office. There was another thing that Cade would mention while screaming in his sleep. He remembered that he was a veteran of the U.S. Air Force and described how the roof collapsed on him during the attacks, which blocked him from getting to the stairs. Research proved there was a man named Robert Pattison that died that day. Working in the North Tower, 
with a window that faced the Statue of Liberty. And he was also a veteran of the U.S. Air Force. That's insane. Some of Kate's facts didn't check out, but a lot of them did. Yeah. He was three when he started talking about it? Yes. That's weird. That's going to be my word for this whole episode. Yeah. That one right. gave me the chills. Yeah, that one's... <clears throat> All right. I called this one, I Want to Go Home. A woman, Dorothy Eady, was born in Blackheath, London in 1904. But when she was three years old, she fell down the stairs at her home. The doctor determined that she had died, but an hour later, she was fine. That's a big jump from dead to, I'm fine. Being fine. fine. Yeah. She's up Um, and walking. Yeah. After this accident, Dorothy distinctly remembered living in a large building with columns and frequently stated that she wants to go home. The next year, her family went to the British Museum, and that's where Dorothy claimed that her real home was Egypt. She even ran up to the statues of the Egyptian gods and goddesses and began kissing them. She's four. (laughs) Okay. I was like, how old was she again? I I didn't learn about Egypt till I was probably 10 or 11. Yeah. I mean, I knew about it, but like not. I knew about the pyramids and stuff from cartoons, but. Yeah. Um, We all go, you know, that Egypt phase we all go through. Mine was later. (laughs) Um, She eventually moved to Egypt in 1933, where she married an Egyptian man. Their marriage only lasted two years, but Dorothy refused to leave. I even read one thing that when she arrived, she literally like kissed the ground and she's like, I'm never leaving. This is is where I'm supposed to be. Um. Learning hieroglyphics was a breeze for her, and she worked very hard to remember her past life, even giving up her raised Christian background for Egyptian polytheism. She became a keeper of the, I don't know how to say any of this, Ibdos, um, Temple of Seti I, and a folklorist. She even became a draughts woman for the Department of Egyptian Antiquities. Now an adult, she firmly believed that she had been named Bentrishit? Bentrish. My ancient Egyptian is, like, real bad. So, um, She was an orphan that was adopted by the Temple of Qom el-Sultan, which is near the Abydos Temple. Her father was a soldier who left her there after her mother, who was a fruit seller, had died. She can't remember a life outside of the temple walls, but she can remember a high priest who, had, who was an awful old killjoy. <laughs> she also remembered becoming a priestess and working for King Seti like in King Seti I's court. Dorothy died in 1981, but in 1987, a story emerged that she also believed she had had an affair with King Seti and became pregnant and killed herself instead of revealing the scandal because as a priestess, she was supposed to be like a virgin or whatever. Um, It sounds bananas because it does. You're like, okay, well, you obviously have this extensive knowledge of Egypt and whatever, but... They did test her knowledge, and she claimed that the Temple of Seti was surrounded by gardens and large trees, which are obviously no longer there. Um, But then later on, archaeologists uncovered a garden in the exact spot that Dorothy said it was in. Wow. The chief of the Antiquities Department even brought her into the Temple of Seti and asked her to stand near a certain wall painting in almost complete darkness. He asked her to identify them according to her memories. These paintings and markings have never been identified to the world, and they were not published anywhere in Egypt. 
So she and she knew every answer and details that hadn't even been discovered yet. Some historians even listened to her very carefully on accounts of ancient Egypt. For instance, before the tomb of Nefertiti was located, Dorothy said it was in the Valley of the Kings, which it was. Wow. Yep. That's insane. <laughs> yeah. I'm also slightly jealous. I want to be an ancient <laughs> Egyptian. <laughs> Maybe you were. I wasn't. Um, <laughs> all right. Thomas Nolan. Ooh. Thomas Nolan was four years old when he started talking about being a firefighter during the 9-11 attacks. When asking him what he wanted to do when he grew up by his family, uh, he claimed, I just don't want to be a firefighter. I've always been a firefighter. I went to work in the morning and took off my fire protection suit in the evening. He also explained that he used an axe to contain the fire behind the walls and avoid, to avoid danger. His mom thought it was just his imagination until he saw a picture of the World Trade Center in a magazine. He said that the bad guys burned these building down, buildings down, people had to jump, and I could not help them. People were waiting for the firemen, they were waiting for me, but I couldn't help them. That's horrible. What a horrible yeah. memory to have as a... I know. As anybody, but then, like, as a four-year-old. Yeah. Ugh. Mm-hmm. Alrighty. A reincarnation within a reincarnation. I honestly don't remember why I called it that. Um, Laure Renaud was born in Aumont, France in 1868. This is the oldest one I can find. Um, her story is detailed by Dr. Ian Stevenson, who is one of the foremost researchers into parapsychology, and he went into the study to disprove reincarnation stories, and in doing so, became one of its biggest advocates. He was big in the 60s, I think. Um, Laura rejected her Catholic upbringing and its ideas of heaven, hell, and purgatory, and she believed in reincarnation at a young age. At 17, she moved to Paris. Um, to study medicine, and she was married in 1904. She decided to work as an alternative healer after learning a type of hypnosis called magnetism. She was hired by a Dr. Gaston Derville in Paris. She told Dr. Derville that she remembered living in a large house with tall arched windows in a sunny climate. She explained a large terrace around the house and a smaller one on the top. She also believed there was a park nearby with a lot of very old trees and a small number of workhouses nearby. She believed that this was over a century ago. She also remembered having some sort of chest disease and coughed a lot. Dr. Derville was skeptical, but still published a report. In 1917, so Laura was now almost 50 years old, um, the doctor sent her to treat a wealthy patient in Genoa, Italy. Laura felt an immediate sense of familiarity, and she thought this might be where she used to live, even though she had never been before. Like, literally on her train ride in. She was like, this feels like home. Um, while there, she inquired about the house she remembered. Her host took her to a house that they thought might be the one, she, but she said it wasn't the one she remembered. Although, she felt like it was close by. Lo and behold, they drove a little further down when they came upon a mansion that Lord knew was hers. Large arched windows, a terrace around the bottom, and a small terrace on the top. They kind of talked about, like, geographic memory, how, like, um, kind of like Dorothy's story, she remembered a lot more after she was in Europe because it, like, triggers 
You know what I mean? It triggers memory. It does that for us. Like I can still go home and remember where things are. Um, Now that she was in Genoa, she remembered that she wasn't buried in the cemetery, but in the church itself. Well, in like a, it's like a private one, whatever. Her boss looked into this statement. So the man who used to own the mansion that she remembered was Benjamino Spontini. He had a wife named Giovanna. She was buried in the church at Notre Dame du Mont in a private cemetery. And she died in 1809 of a chronic illness and catching a severe chill. And it is not noted that no one mentioned if they had any like physical, like if they looked anything alike or anything, which is unfortunate. Dr. Stevenson claimed, so the doctor that studies all this stuff, um, that the possibility of this being a past life reincarnation may be slim since that architecture was common during the Italian Renaissance, but he found that the chronic illness was a very interesting connection. Hmm. And I think the church thing. Yeah. Not being buried in like the, the regular cemetery. Right. Interesting. Interesting. Um, how many more stories do you have? I think I only have two. I have three. Three? Yep. I only have two. Um, and they're shorter ones. Okay. I'll say one, and then you do... Two? two. Mine are longer. So, not longer, um, but they're not short. Yeah, mine are short. Mine are really short. Okay. Mother Lucia. Uh, Lucia's son was four when he began to describe what happened to him on 9-11. He was a worker who died during the attacks. When he saw photographs, he pointed out the window where he was working. So he pointed out his office. He claimed he felt the building fall and was buried under the rubble when he died. So he remembered the building collapsing and him being stuck under the rubble. Waiting for people to come rescue him. No one did. Yeah. Yuck. (laughs) Yeah. What is the theme with the four-year-olds? Is there a science behind that? I have yes. A, I have and a four-year-old will, one, too. And I will talk about that. Great. Save it for um, after my four-year-old story. It's my... not. The well, one, I'll save it. One. I have one more story, and then I have some science facts about reincarnation. Perfect. I have no facts, so... <laughs> Except the ones I've, like, sprinkled in to things. Yeah. Thousands of years. I'm listening. James Arthur Flowerdew, um, who went by Arthur, was born on December 1st, 1906 in Norfolk, England. Arthur had distinct memories from a very young age of a stone city carved into a cliff. His visions continued to grow stronger with age. The city and the cliff was surrounded by desert, and there was a temple, a canyon, streets, and buildings laid out in very specific ways. He often had clear memories of the city when he played with the pink and orange rocks at the beach near his home that his family often visited. As an adult, Arthur was watching a BBC documentary, and he immediately recognized the city in the documentary as the city from his visions. It was the lost city of Petra, which have you ever seen pictures of Petra? No. You should Google it because it's gorgeous. It's literally like their temple thing, I think. it's The temple is like in the cliff. It's, like, in this, and you have to go through, like, a gorge, I think, to get there. It's beautiful. Um, Petra is in Georgia. Georgian? Not Georgia. Jordan, the country of Jordan. And it is believed that um, it was built as early as the 5th century BC, and it was a large 
trading hub. It lost its independence to the Roman Empire in 106 AD, and its importance declined as sea trade routes became more prominent and after a big earthquake in 363, which destroyed most of the city. The city continued to decline and was abandoned in the early Islamic era, and it remained unknown until 1812. So Arthur became convinced that he had lived there in the past, and he contacted the BBC, which recorded a small piece about him, which the Jordanian government saw, and they were intrigued. So they offered to fly Arthur to Petra to see its remains and to perhaps, like Dorothy, give them insights into the city. Arthur went to Jordan and was interviewed by an archaeological expert who was excavating Petra in order to test Arthur's knowledge. They quizzed him extensively, and he even knew every answer with ease. And sometimes he would clearly and rationally correct them for something that they asked incorrectly. <laughs> it's insane. Um, it is also claimed that Arthur remembered the city with astounding accuracy and even pointed out three landmarks that were prominent in his memory, and he went straight to those landmarks upon his arrival, all without Damn. a guide or a map. He just, like, went. <laughs> Um, he even correctly identified locations that had yet to be excavated and explained how to use a device that they found in Petra that had been baffling archaeologists. I did try to find what that device was, and I can't, so sorry. Um, he also explained the use of a structure that no one knew what its purpose was at the time. He even went into the military barrack and showed the guard room and explained how to operate the check-in system for the guards. Professional researchers and archaeologists didn't take Arthur to be a fraud. He had more knowledge of the city than many of them for someone who hadn't studied the city for many years. Arthur claimed he hadn't heard of Petra until he saw the documentary and had never read anything about the city. He even found the landmark for where he was murdered by an enemy spear. Arthur passed away in September 2002 at the ripe old age of 95 in Norfolk, England. Wow. That's insane. <laughs> Very. I never, I only heard of Petra like maybe a year ago because of a documentary. I've never heard of it. It's really pretty. <laughs> like really pretty. But is it me again? Or are you reading one? Yeah. You do one. You go. Oh. I oh, here's my four year old. My okay. four year old. Most of yours have been four. four. The Egyptian girl was four. Yeah. Or just young. Yeah. Like three, four. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Weird. Curious. I'll tell you. you I, I know. Got you. I'm curious. Um, Shanti Devi was born on December 11th. <gasps> I know this one. You know this one? It's good, isn't it? Oh, my gosh. It? Oh, my gosh. It's so good. Go ahead. Okay. Well, for the people that don't know it, <laughs> it is yeah. good. Um, she was born on December 11th, 1926 in Delhi, India. Shanti was a completely normal child until the age of four um, when she started talking about a different life. Shortly after she learned to speak, she began telling her parents of a town 100 miles away, which neither she nor her parents had ever visited. She could remember details about all of the shops and streets in this town she never visited. It's repetitive, but there you go. She claimed that her real home was in Mathura, um, where she lived with her husband, who, she explained, wore reading glasses, had a large wart on his left cheek, and that he was light-skinned. She also told them that he was a merchant whose shop was directly in front of the Dwarkadish Temple in Mathura. 
Her parents dismissed these memories, which discouraged her, so she ran away from home at the age of six, trying to return to her real home. It wasn't until after she returned home and started school that she revealed her husband's name, all using the Mathura dialect. Um, I'm, I don't know how to say any of this. Uh, Pandit okay. Kedarnath Shaub. Shaub. Um, he went by Kedarnath. Um, she also claimed that she had died 10 days after giving birth in October 1925, which is the year before she was born, um, due to complications and remembered her name as Lukti. She even remembered details of labor pains and a surgical procedure. A family friend decided to go find Kedarnath to see if there was anything behind Shanti's memories. Uh, Nath wrote back to this friend and confirmed all of the details, and he agreed to send a relative to visit Shanti in her home. They used this to test her knowledge and said that this was her husband, but she didn't fall for it and said, no, this is my husband's cousin. Everyone was shocked, so Nath brought his child he had with Lugdi, um, who was now 10, and visited Debbie, who immediately burst into tears. He spoke to her on his own and claimed that she answered every question correctly, and he even began crying, even that she died from complications of a C-section. After a week-long visit, Kadar and his son returned to Mathura, and Shanti begged for her parents to take her to visit her home. She wanted to prove further that it was real and that she could lead them to her house and that she even had a box of money hidden. So she's only like 10 at this yeah. point. Um, and at this point... Mahatma Gandhi became intrigued by the story who set up a commission to investigate. So, without further ado, Gandhi's commission, Shanti and her parents, took the three-hour train ride to Mathura in November 1935. They placed her in the front seat ahead of everyone, and they took necessary precautions so no pedestrians could lead the way, and the driver was instructed to only follow her directions, no matter where she pointed him to. She easily directed the group to her old home, and she noted different details of streets that hadn't been paved until recently or new buildings, which the driver confirmed was all correct. Upon reaching the house and exploring it with Kedar Nath, a member um, of the commission mentioned her box of money in which she ran upstairs and went straight to the corner of a room, saying that she had hit a box under the floorboard. Kedar Nath opened it up to find a small coffer, but it was empty. This was the time that Kedar announced that he had taken the money after Lugdi's death. The tour continued, and they took a trip to Lugdi's parents' house, in which she recognized the house and even her father and mother in a crowd of over 50 people. They even embraced tearfully. The commission could never give a rational explanation for the entire trip. Shanti never married, but she told her story again in the 1950s and in the 80s when she was interviewed by Dr. Ian Stevenson and K.S. Rawat. Um, I didn't look up who he was, but I'm assuming he worked with Stevenson? I don't know. Um... He even continued his investigations in 1987, and his last interview with Shanti was four days before she died in December 1987. Wow. That is I remember one. that one. Yeah. Um, all right. Do it. My last one. Um, an eight-year-old started talking to his mom about nightmares of dying in a fire. He named someone that was his coworker that he was trying to save, but was blocked in by the ceiling that caved in. Mm -hmm. He claimed to work on the 55th, 54th floor of the World Trade Center. Uh, I believe that they looked up the coworker's name, which I don't have that name, but they mm -hmm. looked up the coworker's name and were able to verify 
that there was someone that died of that name in the World Trade Center Weird. on 9-11. Weird. The 9-11 ones are really sad. I know. I know. All of these kids are remembering, like, these really horrible things that kids yeah. should not even know about. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Ugh. My last one. Um, in May 1957, there was a car crash in Hexham, Northumberland, UK. Joanna, 11, and Jacqueline, 6, were on their way to church with a friend when the crash happened. Everyone in the vehicle died instantly. John and Florence Pollock, Joanna and Jacqueline's parents, were devastated, and John kept praying that the girls would return to them. The next year... 1958, Florence became pregnant, and although up until the birth it was believed she was pregnant with only one child, she gave birth to identical twin girls on October 4th, 1958. The girls were named Jillian and Jennifer, and John and Florence immediately noticed similarities between their young twins and their two older daughters. Jacqueline had a scar on her forehead, and Jennifer had a birthmark there. Jacqueline also had a birthmark on her leg, as did Jennifer. Jillian did not share any of these marks with her sisters. When the girls were, or I think, I think the way it said it, cause it was like with her sister and I was like, cool, there's four of them all together. But I think it means like they were identical besides these two marks. Her and mm -hmm. Jennifer. Um, yeah. When the girls were three months old, the family moved to Whitley Bay. The girls started asking for toys that had once belonged to their older sisters, but not toys they would have seen or knew of. The family returned to Hexham when the girls were four, and even though they left Hexham when they were only three months old, they had very specific memories, like playing on the playground at a specific school. They had never attended that school, but their older sisters did. They also had an irrational fear of cars, and they would shriek that the car was coming to get them at the sight of any moving car. Once the girls turned five, their memories faded, and they went on to live happy, normal lives. Dr. Ian Stevenson did believe the girls, but it remains unsolved since their past life memories had vanished. Wow. I do remember that one. The birthmarks were actually the scars, right? Of the what girls this that... one was. The one on her head was. Yeah. And then and then um Jacqueline had a birthmark on her leg, although one article said her wrist, so I don't know if it, so I think one was just a matching birthmark and the other one was a scar, which it is said that like your scar, your birthmarks can be marks of old. Yeah. Like how you died in a past life. I have one that's like right here. Yeah. Um, on my arm. It's like upper towards my armpit yeah. area. Um, but I, I mean, I know there's a main artery there, so maybe somebody slashed me. Oh, what a horrible way in the armpit. What a horrible way yeah. to die. I have um like a coffee colored one on my thigh and a matching one like on my waist, like uh, both on my left side. Oh, and wow. my mom swears she was like, You weren't born with birthmarks. And I'm like, what the hell are these? I like, wasn't I've either. had them. Mine's I've had them up. my whole life that that I can remember. I don't remember ever not mine, having them. Mine showed up like I don't know when. It was probably when I was like 10, 11, 12, 13. I don't know. Yeah, mine have been my whole life. But I even like, I think there is something specific about coffee 
colored ones. They're not like super dark. They're just like a tan splotch. I'm also covered in bruises. I don't know what that is, but that's just me <laughs> trying to yeah. live through life. <laughs> I'm like trying to find my birthmark and I'm like, all I see is that's green. That's green. That's green. That's blue. <laughs> Woo. Um, well, there you go. That was my last tell one. You, let me tell you some science stuff about yes. reincarnation. Uh, researchers note that young children who are three to five year olds, years old, most often recalled their past lives. Usually it comes out of nowhere, just a thought that they like blurt out. Yeah. In many cases, it's proven that the child's testimony exactly matches the facts of the life and death of the person that they're referring to. As children get older, usually by the age of seven, the memories dissipate. Dr. Jim B. Tucker from Penn State. Uh, studied cases of past life memory in children from all over the world. He has accepted the possibility of the existence of reincarnation due to, the due to studying and hearing all of the different stories and then researching, of course. Yeah. Um, reincarnates tend to find themselves in the same country that they were living during a previous life. Emotional connections to places could also explain this trend or that the process of reincarnation involves some form of geographic geographical constraint hmm. well i disagree because all my stories were not that <laughs> right not like the girl them. right but yeah. maybe they had a connection to myanmar or well they were all the, born there it's but like i know um, but like in uh, their past life jordan or yeah well that's the other thing like how many of them had other past lives that do connect them to all those places yep because if you think of, like, Buddhism and Hinduism, I think it is, that they all yeah. believe in reincarnations, that it's like it's going to happen over and over again. It's not. Yeah. I also have yeah. heard um, from an astrological point, whatever your south node is, is like a symbol for what you were in a past life. So, like, the thing I've read, because mine is cancer, and I think what I've read is, like, that means I was, like, the head of my family. I don't know what that means. I could be in any capacity whatsoever, but it could be something to that. Interesting. Any more sciencey things? Nothing. Theories? Do you think they're real? I do. I do, too. I do. I think that... Uh, it definitely is uh, possible, although I don't remember anything from any of my potential past lives. Um, well, that was my next question because I don't either, and I wonder if um, everyone has them. Yeah. Isn't there also a theory that's like the more spiritual? Yes. Nope. Something like that. The more something you are, it's like the more past lives you've gone through. I think it's the more spiritual, like the more like, I hate this term, but like woke mm -hmm. you are is like you've gone through more past lives because you've like lived through a bunch of bullshit, basically. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. I also think they're real. I don't remember any of mine. In my mind, I hope I was like a pirate, but I doubt it. <laughs> Or an Egyptian person. I don't know. It's something cool. Yeah. <laughs> Not something horrible like 9 Well, I was alive during 9-11, but through something similar. 
I'll wrap us out, but I don't have an outro written. <laughs> Unless you have one. I don't. Let me find an outro to read, although I should have it memorized by now. Let's see how I do. If you or anyone in your family has a past life story or a theory on if they're real or science debunking it or proving it or whatever, please feel free to email us at mrreticle at gmail.com. Follow us on, I almost said MySpace. <laughs> Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. <laughs> Not MySpace. And I don't even think that's possible. And uh, YouTube. Um, I'm also going to post the video of last year's Halloween special on YouTube. So if you want to watch a video about us talking about black-eyed kids instead of just listening to it, there you go. Um, I think that's it. Don't play with strangers. And don't trust your government. I want to go home. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I want to hear everyone's past live stories. Me too. Send them, please. <laughs> the end. Scene. <laughs> it's over. <laughs> <laughs>